morning. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. When you've made your way there, would you, let me, would you let me know by standing for the reading of God's Word? Amen. This morning, our message comes from the first seven verses of the revelation of our Lord. The Lord speaks, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated this morning. Well, ready or not... Normal life has returned in full force. The holidays are over, and normally we might say something like, it's time to buckle down, but maybe after one too many sugar cookies, we might be lucky to get the buckle to close. Uh, Nevertheless, the holiday season gives way to the season of setting goals and a season of setting off on the right foot. There was a young man who found himself at the end of one year, He found himself grown tired of everything about his existence. He was at his routine stop at a coffee shop along his way to work where he customarily ordered a tall cup of joe. And this particular morning, the wait for the order was longer than normal. And he'd already caught up on all his morning email as he scrolled through his phone. And to pass the time, he resorted to the absolute last thing anyone wants to do anymore. He looked at his surroundings. And even though he had been in this coffee shop a hundred times before, this may have been the first time that he had slowed down enough to take in the scenery. And against the wall, off in the distance, there was a mom who was fresh off her morning workout, who was beginning to sip on a frap while her toddler was entertained with the screen. And he looked at her and he saw so much of what he thought that he lacked. She looked to be rather fit, and she appeared to be enjoying her caffeinated bliss while her little one was peaceably occupied. And sitting into the window to his left were two young 
college-age men, a couple of them. And they were sitting in a booth together, laughing and relishing in their love for one another. And though the young man himself had grown up in a Christian home, his first thought in looking upon that scene was about what he might say to them to encourage them to nurture their budding relationship. Ahead of him in line was a, a businessman who repeatedly was checking his watch, weighing whether he might get his morning fixed before his big end-of-year review. He overheard the man muttering beneath his breath a brief prayer. God, I need you to help me get this coffee that you know I depend on. Can you maybe toss me a lifeline here? And the young man heard this, and he identified with that type of prayer. He remembered how maybe just the week before he had asked God to help him catch a connecting flight home after the weather delayed his trip. And we so much desire to start off 2023 on the right foot, don't we? And for some of us, today's the first time in church in a long time, or, or we're just here out of habit, yet no matter the circumstance that's brought us here, we can kind of identify with this young man at a coffee shop. Or maybe more specifically, we can identify with his observations about those whom he saw while he was waiting for his coffee. We can because in their own ways, they offer glimpses into the religion of this age. Well, how would you describe living right with God? How do you know if you are in the first place? Is evidence of a God-honoring life found when, we are, we are, when there are times in our life like that happy mom that are just living happy lives and living out our dreams? Is that what defines that? What do we even understand of God? I mean, maybe he's God. Maybe he's up in heaven right now managing all the affairs of his kingdom up there. But down here in the real world, we might say, I'm just trying to live a good, clean life, right? I don't really want to bother God with my problems. I mean, I know he's God, and I, I know I can reach out to him when I really need him. Just like the guy who needs to make his meeting. And, I, and if I understand anything about God, I know he loves me. and I know he wants me to just be happy. And to just love others like those two men are happily in love. And Jesus said that he left heaven and came to earth so that you and I may have life and have it abundantly. Well, is this abundant life that Jesus was talking about made up of the ingredients of doing what makes us happy and trying to be the best that we can? Is an ingredient of that abundant life just having the assurance that, that God's up there and is standing at the ready to toss us a life preserver whenever we find ourselves in trouble? And in many ways, those ingredients of happiness and just being nice people are because we think that God is nice. <laughs> and we have succumbed to the peddling of a message that's the religion of our age. It's a way of living and thinking that convinces us that our number one objective is to feel good about ourselves. 
And it tells us that we should do that because, well, that's what God wants for us. So it gives us excuse to stare into our phones, checking out from the real world. All the while, while we search Spotify for that playlist that will just numb us to whatever we might feel or have to deal with. That, that, that God, he's up in heaven. That God is just a sleepy old man who doesn't want anything from us more than for us to pursue our own happiness. So we can go about doing what fancies us or interests us so long as we're nice to others we do it that seems so nice doesn't it everyone just pursuing their own happiness it seems like a little slice of heaven now but if we're pulling down the ingredients of the spice rack for a so-called good life how would we know what ingredients to draw from that that proverbial rack How would we even know when we'd run dry of the most vital ingredients? We'll find that this morning's text will challenge the commonly held understandings of God right away as we read. Do you live with the idea that you're on your own and you don't need to pay much attention to God? Well, how about this to start us off? This morning's texts are words that the resurrected Jesus Christ speaks to a little church in the Turkish town of Ephesus. Jesus has some things to tell them. He's not off in the distance, removed from the lives of the Christians in Ephesus or the ongoings in their church. He's not absent from these things. He's smack dab in the middle of it all. And after seeing how things have fared for them, well, he's got something to tell them. Now, you you and I need to know some things about this church at Ephesus. They didn't live life in a bottle, so to say. In a very similar way to you and I today, they had begun to feel the pressures of an anything-goes society that was contending for the hearts and minds of everyday men and women. A world that said things like, oh, you've got sexual urges? Act on them. You want to seek your own glory? Go get after it. You want to live a God-honoring life? Just pick your God. Jupiter or Juno or Neptune or even that guy Jesus and be faithful to that God. And in the midst of that backdrop, Jesus speaks to this beleaguered church some important ingredients that are necessary for you and I if, we are, if the fire of our affections for Christ are to be reignited. And as Jesus speaks to the Ephesians, he gives them two kudos and one chastisement. And we'll see what the Bible says about right living by first considering what Jesus applauds in the church. Now imagine with me a moment that these are real people to whom Jesus speaks, who really lived and gathered to worship the risen Lord Jesus week to week. Maybe it was one cold winter morning at the start of a new year that the pastor of of the Ephesian uh, church stood up in front of the congregation to speak. And in the course of his commentary, he recalled some of the difficulty that they'd faced in the last year, particularly with their cloak and blanket ministry for the orphan children in Ephesus. And he commented on how he and the church were surprised at the resistance that they'd faced in just trying to keep kids warm, the kids that weren't loved by anyone. Yet he was 
encouraged by how they persisted through that and how the Holy Spirit had opened a door for them. And then the pastor then challenged the congregation to continue to pray for their family members and those who they worked alongside to come to faith in Christ. That was his custom at the start of the new year, by the way. In fact, the pastor recognized that that was his challenge from the year before and the year before that. And though maybe they hadn't seen much progress on this front. He then reminded the congregation that they would soon have their their committee organization meeting the next Sunday and that it would orient their new committee members and their responsibilities of their committees. Um, Yes, maybe this was FBC Ephesus. And from all outward appearances, Ephesus was a great church to attend. I mean, it was fairly well organized. They knew work. In fact, if there was one thing about this church at Ephesus... They labored for the Lord. Jesus credits them for this in in verse 2. He says, I know your work. And And in every way that made sense for them, they maintained what God provided for them. None different than how our preschool and children leaders spent yesterday uh, tidying up our education wing or our sound folks came and did installations yesterday. These Ephesian Christians labored long and hard the kingdom of God. Now, life as a Christian wasn't easy for these first century Ephesians. And Jesus says that in the text as he applauds them for their toil and patient endurance. Well, why wasn't life easy for them? Well, being a Christian in first century Turkey wasn't like being a Christian in our American Bible Belt. It's not to say that as Christians today we live without challenges, but we don't know the challenges that come from living in a region where the name of Christ was unknown to the majority. We don't know the challenges of living under a system that's not influenced by Judeo-Christian beliefs. And for our Ephesian brothers and sisters, they had none of the benefits that we enjoy. You might picture with me that when the Christians in Ephesus went to work each day in their marketplaces, in their shipyards, they conducted the business among heathen pagans who took every opportunity available to them to gain an advantage. The pagans lied. They cheated. They stole. Yet the Christians in Ephesus, they wouldn't fall to conducting themselves like their pagan counterparts, and and rather they endured not as upstanding citizens of Rome, but as upstanding citizens of heaven. The conduct of these kingdom citizens was known by her king, and the king's response to their conduct is favorable. I mean, imagine with me what getting a gold star from King Jesus might mean for a tired and struggling church whose labors are a toil, as Jesus himself acknowledges. And just as an aside, toil's an interesting word, isn't it? Toiling isn't a word that we use much anymore, but the general sense isn't lost upon us when we read it. We understand a toil to mean that you're subject to a grudging, difficult work. And while that's true, in the original Greek, the word that Jesus uses that our Bibles translate as toil, that word is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe Christian ministry, to describe serving our Lord. 
That may come as a shock to you if you've understood that where you serve, say, in this church is supposed to just easily bring blessings upon you as if rose petals are falling from the sky. Now, these Ephesians had been battle-tested and hardened because they had come to discover that their service for the Lord was definitively the hardest thing that they would do in their lives. And someone might be wondering, how do people living in the first century, just decades after the Christ event, who were so few in number, how did they come to learn how to conduct themselves in such a Christ-honoring way? Well, someone may say in response, oh, they have the Holy Spirit. And that's true. That's a key. But it ain't all of it. To say that we have the Spirit in need of nothing else in our Christian walks, that puts us in a real dangerous spot. It's real dangerous because it's an easy enough thing to begin to say to others, I'm doing this or I'm saying this or I'm acting this way because this is how the Spirit has led me. Friends, that's where every heretic and that is where every cult has started from. And attention in our, in our Christian faith is the reality that the Holy Spirit, God himself, it comes to live within the believer who himself or herself, though redeemed, is yet still a sinner. We need another voice outside of our own, the, the, the one in our own head, to give us the ability to discern the difference between God's voice and our own. And what the Ephesians had that served them well was the knowledge of the truth of God and the passion for the gospel. And among all of their labors, it wasn't their conduct that stood out most prominently to the Lord. It was the passion for the truth of the gospel that they held together in their community. It was their ability to weed out the people who came through with wrong understandings about God or wrong understandings about Jesus Christ because they knew deep down how, how much bad theology hurts. Let's take a deep breath for a moment. Did you know that there are over 617,000 bridges in the United States? You've probably driven over more than you can remember or even give count of. But here's something that's going to make you think twice about the next bridge you drive over. In just the last decade, the condition of nearly half of the bridges in this country have dropped from a rating of good to fair. Now, I confess I can't tell you the difference between the two, but any time in my mind, any time something drops, be it a, a plate in the kitchen or your plane's altitude or the condition of a bridge, that's probably not a good thing, Okay. Yet both of those ratings are better than the condition of structurally deficient. Well, there was a bridge in our country that was closed down because it was deemed to be structurally deficient. And it was in need of immediate repair. And engineers, they took time. They went and replaced every bolt and every rod that supported that particular bridge. And the authorities, upon the, com the completion of all that replacement and repair, they were set to reopen the bridge when someone wisely said, you know, before we let cars run over this, we ought to test it. We ought to test the bridge. You know what the test proved? That as, that as load was applied to that bridge that those newly installed bolts, those newly installed rods, they cracked. They would have never been able to support the weight of anything attempting to cross them. 
would have cost countless lives. And I wonder in the midst of tragedy, like what our community has faced in just the last few days, with the death of a beloved coach at the school, I wonder if your philosophy on life can withstand such difficulty. Say, for example, that some of the things that I've seen on social media that, are, that, are, that I know people have posted with the intent of offering comfort. These are things that would have us to believe that, well, life is short. And because of that, we should live however we please. Well, that sounds great. But how does that philosophy hold up under the weight of death? I don't know where she is now, but I tell you, she lived exactly how she wanted. What comfort is there in those words to those who are left behind to grieve? These Ephesians, they did the hard work of contending for truth because they understood the vital importance of discipling Christians with the truth of the gospel. So you and I, we have a sacred privilege to share the true faith that will withstand even the most difficult conditions. And in approach and attempting to accomplish that, we often will try to encourage people to attend church. And we think that we're doing well when we offer these encouragements, when we offer them this way. Whatever you do, find yourself in a church that believes and teaches the Bible. Well, this church in Ephesus was one of those. But yet, as the risen Lord Jesus gave his assessment of the church for all their hard work, for all their discerning truth from lie, they still lacked something. They were missing an ingredient, we might say. And it's not just a secondary ingredient to the meals that we prepare. It is as essential as salt is to the tongue. I joked earlier that that this might be FBC Ephesus, but we at this church, really this church, are really having an organizational meeting for our committees next Sunday. Mark it on your calendars. If you're serving on a committee, be there at that meeting so you can begin to prepare for the work that uh, your committee has before you this year. But I was thinking about my times working with people on committees or working in the programs that this church offers I've been thinking about experiences where I've been in gatherings where everybody is laser-focused on the task at hand. I mean, the discussion is about what needs to be done and who's going to do it. And, and every once in a while, when I begin to suspect that the group has been so like focused on the particulars that they can no longer see the forest for the trees, I interrupt and I ask a question. And some may say upon hearing the question I ask, are you just trying to distract him? No, I'm not. But I ask the question, why are we doing this? Because when you ask why, you're asking for purpose. What's the purpose of this thing we're planning to do? And that's the interesting thing with the question of why. It's an open-ended question that invites us to explore. Well, what's the purpose of this committee? What's the purpose for our gathering here this morning? We ask why? It invites creativity. It invites expression. We ask why. It's where the Spirit is at work. These Ephesians, they could no longer answer the question of why behind what they did. 
Imagine some Roman official passing through Ephesus who stops a Christian and asks, what's your purpose and concern for all of the orphans of this city or the widows? Why do you guys subject yourself to such toil? I mean, can't you look at the rest of us and see how much easier life would be if you submitted to Lord Caesar? I mean, you could have all the comforts of this life and you could explore your wildest pleasures. And imagine the Ephesian Christian responds, you can enjoy all the pleasures of this world while I carry this cross of toil and obey the commands of Jesus. Because while I am enjoying eternity with the true Lord of all, you'll be burning in hell. Did that hit your ears as harsh? It was intended to. Because that's Christianity missing an ingredient. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's true for every person in time, eternity awaits us each. We each stare squarely ahead at the certainty that life as we know it will end. And the proposition is either heaven or hell for each of us. But to communicate truth so harshly would do nothing more than to serve to harden hearts to Jesus. It's been said that truth without love is brutality. And these Ephesians had, had become all, all hands and all head, but they had no heart. And for all their service, for all their head and book knowledge, they lacked where it mattered most. They had missed the main ingredient of our faith. Love. You know, Paul wrote to the, to the, uh, to the Corinthians that Christians are nothing, that Christians gain nothing if we have not love. And I couldn't look, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine looking into the eyes of teenagers or educators this week in our community to do or to say or to, to be anything that's rooted in any other place than the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's with love that when tragedy falls, as it has this week, we can speak the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How could Jesus make such an audacious claim that there's comfort coming for those who mourn? What's comforting about the chilling reality of death? Jesus knew all that lay before him when he spoke this. He knew on that mountainside as he preached that the fullness of God dwelled within him and that in him the arrival of God's kingdom had been initiated. In him, God has entered into human history in Jesus. He knew all of our frailties, yet he knew not sin like you and I. And in Jesus, God shows us that That God's not just preoccupied with what's going on up there, but he's intimately involved down here, announcing that it's the kingdom that will no that's in the kingdom that we will no longer shed tears because of the pain in our work. It'll be gone. And that death itself will be no more. That in God's kingdom, all that we understand to be true in this world. It's going to be lastingly reversed to how it was intended to be. That the separation we suffer from God's presence 
will be reconciled and humans will be with God once more. Well, how is it to be remotely possible for the reversal of all that has fallen in this world to come to pass? That's the question I've been laboring towards this morning. Because in it we find the answer of why God would seek to save anyone. And why we as Christians ought to do anything. That's the question whose answer is rooted in the love that God has for each of us. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not, have, should not perish but have eternal life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world might be saved through him. See, God's love, it propelled his grand plan of salvation to, to reverse all of the fallenness of this world. And apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no comfort in mourning because there is no one above the earth, there is no one on the earth, there is no one under the earth who can make sense of death except for the one who's gone through it, through it and has returned. And what Jesus tells this church then and what he tells us today is that church is not a church without love. Not a flowery, sentimental love, but a bloody, nail-welcoming, cross-bearing love. And the missing ingredient in our Christian walks is the same as the missing ingredient in churches all across America. It's the reason why the fire of the Spirit has grown cold. We can become so bound up in just doing what we always do because the generation we've inherited the work from in the church did it that way. And somewhere along the way, we've forgotten our purpose. We have forgotten our why. And our why, our purpose, is found in God's love for us. That as we return to Him, causes us to love others. Dream with me once more. Imagine with me. Imagine a church that has something for everyone. A church who has a fairly repeatable pattern to their annual calendar that's filled with things like committee meetings and vacation Bible schools and mission trips and summer camps and food distributions and Wednesday meals and Bible studies and worship services. From every outward appearance, some might regard a church like that to be the best church in town. What sort of kingdom impact can that church have when in the midst of all of that busyness, they've individually and collectively let the fire grow cold? That fire grows cold so quickly by permitting all that busyness to distract them from their love for the God who first loved them. Imagine with me a different church. A church whose works, whose studies, whose services were rooted in affection stirred by God's love shown most perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether the people had been in that church six weeks or 60 years, they each started their day by recounting the day that they were born from heaven above. They remember the day of their salvation and they went forth. 
Oh, that church, they don't need any of that other stuff. The people in that church wouldn't be concerned about being the best church in town. But as the outflow of God's love would, would, that was poured out through them would make them the best church for the town they were in. That's the sort of church that would turn the world upside down. That's the sort of church that would be known in hell. That's the sort of church I want to be a member of. A church who knows the why of all that she does, that is rooted in God's love for us, and is a consequence of returning our love to Him. We love others. Now, if you came here this morning confident that you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you to gauge yourself. Because if you've ever been in a boiler room, it's impossible to see into the boiler to see how much water it actually contains. But if you've ever seen a boiler, you'll know running right up beside it is a tiny glass tube. It serves as a gauge. As the water stands in that little tube, so it stands in the great boiler. When that little tube is half full, so is the boiler. When that tube is empty, so is the boiler. How do you know if you love God? You believe you love him, but you want to know. Look at the gauge. Your love for others is the measure of your love for God. And if that gauge registers deficient of love for God as evidenced by the lack of love for others, do as Jesus calls this church in Ephesus to do. Repent. Return to the foot of the cross and to be reminded of God's love for you and ask the Holy Spirit to stir within you affections for your glorious Savior. If you came here this morning yet unconverted, still in your sin, I implore you, all that Jesus preached about God's kingdom in the end of death, it is true, it is coming I've staked my own life. I've staked my eternity on this truth. And God loves you so much that he's made a way for you. Yes, even you to be redeemed. That doesn't come on your own terms. There is no compromising with God. It only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, you have life at this moment. And God has given you this opportunity to repent yourself. To turn from going your own way and to surrender to him. Friend, I invite you. Won't you heed his call? Won't you surrender to him and his love today? Let's pray. God of heaven and earth. Lord, we know you speak truth with great clarity. We know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it strikes quick to the bone. Father, I pray this morning that we would know where we stand before you with, with great intimacy, that as your spirit has led us in, in this service, in the teaching of this word, you would convict us of what we need be convicted of and that we would respond as you expect us to. God, I pray that you would stir within us affections for the one who has saved us 
that is a consequence. All that we do, all that we are, all that we say is rooted firmly within the love that you have for us that you have shown most perfectly in his cross. We thank you for the death of Jesus Christ by which we might have our sins atoned. We thank you for his resurrection that gives us hope, gives us the certain hope that days and weeks like these are soon to die their own death. And all things will be made right. All things will be made new. God, do a work in this church that only you can do. Reorient our hearts upon that day of salvation. Stir within us, we pray, in your son's name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning, and I invite you to respond. reminded after the first service uh, to to share with you. Um, For the last year or so, Pastor Carlos and I have uh, been meeting following Sunday mornings um, to to record a podcast that we call Disciple Life. And the purpose of that podcast is to review and uh, expound upon the message that's delivered uh, and the text that the message was preached from. Following the service overhead, there will be a QR code uh, for you to scan where you can submit questions that you might have that remain from this text in which I'm about to preach from, or any questions you might have about the message, and your question may be answered on that podcast that's available in all the different places that podcasts can be found. Um, So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Know that uh, if you have questions, there's an outlet for you to have them answered aside from just coming up and saying, what did you say? Um, so with that being said, turn to, turn to Revelation chapter 2 with me, and as you have found your place in the Word of God, make that known to me by standing for the reading of God's Word. Amen. The Word of God delivered by our Lord beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have. 
You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God for the people of God who may be seated. And ready or not, normal life has returned in full force. The holidays are over and normally we might say something like, you know, honey, it's time to buckle down. But maybe after one too many sugar cookies, we might be lucky to get the belt to buckle at all right now. Nevertheless, the holiday season gives way to a season of setting goals and the season of starting off on the right foot. Well, there was a young man who at the end of one year had grown tired of everything about his existence. It was his routine on his way to work to stop at a coffee shop in order to order, in order, to order a tall cup of joe. And this particular morning, the wait for the order was longer than normal and, well, he had already passed his time by checking all of his email and there wasn't anything else his phone could occupy him with. And so to pass time, he resorted to the absolute last thing that anyone wants to do anymore. He looked around at his surroundings. And even though there had, he had been in this coffee shop at least a hundred times before, this may be the first time that he slowed down enough to take in the scenery. I mean, against the wall off in the distance, there was a mom who was fresh off her workout trying to sip on her frap while her toddler was entertained with a screen. And he looked upon that scene and he saw her, 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 her life and saw so much of what he thought he lacked. I mean, she looked to be rather fit, and she appeared to be enjoying her caffeinated bliss while her child was peaceably occupied. Staring off into the left where the window was, there was a young, uh, left of the young man, there was a, a couple of college-aged men. They were sitting in a booth together, and they were laughing and relishing in their love for one another. And though the young man who was waiting in line had grown up in a Christian home, His first thought in looking upon the scene was, what might I say to encourage these two in their relationship? Ahead of him in line was another businessman who was, you know, just repeatedly checking his watch, weighing whether he could wait out this long wait before his big end-of-year review. He overheard the man muttering beneath his breath a, a brief prayer. God, I need you to help me get that cup of coffee I know that you know I depend upon. Can you maybe toss me a lifeline here, dear Lord? The young man heard this prayer. He identified with this prayer. He remembered how just the week prior he asked God to help him catch his, his connecting flight after weather had delayed his trip back home. Oh, we so much desire to start off 2023 on the right foot, don't we? And for some of us, today's the first time in a church in a long time, or for some of us, we're here out of habit. Yet no matter the circumstance that's brought us here, we can kind of identify with this young man at a coffee shop. Or maybe more specifically, we can identify with what he's observed about those whom he has watched while waiting for his coffee. We can identify because in their own ways... In the stories about those people around him in the coffee shop, they offer glimpses 
into what I will call the religion of this age. I want to ask you, how would you describe living right with God? How do you know if you are in the first place? Is it a, an evidence, is evidence of a God-honoring life found when there are, are times in our life like we, when we, like that happy mom, are just living happy lives and living out our dreams? What do we even understand of God? I mean, maybe in our minds, He's God. Maybe in our minds, God is up there in heaven and He's occupied by managing the things and the affairs of heaven. But for us, down here in the the real world, we might just say to ourselves, I'm just trying to live a good, clean life. Right? I mean, I don't really want to bother God with my problems. I mean, I know He's God and all. And I can reach out to him whenever I really need him. Just like the guy who needs him right now in front of me in this meeting. Waiting for his meeting. If I understand anything about God, I know he loves me. And I know he just wants me to be happy. He wants me to just love others like those two men are happily I mean, I remember that Jesus said that upon leaving heaven that he came to earth so that you and I might have life and have it abundantly. Well, then I ask, is the abundant life that Jesus was talking about made up of the ingredients of doing or what makes us happy? Made up of the ingredients of just trying our best to live a good life is an ingredient of this abundant life in which Jesus spoke about, just having the assurance that that God, He's up there. That God up there, He's just standing ready to toss us a life preserver when we find ourselves in trouble. Is this the abundant life? In many ways, those ingredients of happiness and the ingredient of being a nice person that comes because we believe that God is nice. And, and we, we, we have succumbed to the peddling of a message about happiness and niceness that's really the religion of our age. It's a way of living and, and thinking that convinces us that our number one objective is to feel good about ourselves. And it tells us that we should do that because, well, that's what God wants for us. So it makes it okay for us to just stare into our phones and walk by everybody who comes as we search our phones for that Spotify playlist that will make us feel numb to everything we might feel right now. Make us feel numb to all that we encounter. And we don't have to bother talking to anybody Because that playlist is going to hit. That God, that God who's up in heaven, he's just a sleepy old man, right? A sleepy old man who doesn't want anything from us more than for us to pursue what makes us happy. So that we can go about doing whatever fancies our own interests so that 
so long as we are nice to others as we're doing whatever satisfies us. That seems so nice, doesn't it? I mean, this is the stuff that sells on the the shelves of Barnes & Noble in the Christian section right now. Everyone pursuing their own happiness. It seems like our own little slice of heaven right now. But if we're pulling down ingredients from the spice rack of this so-called good life, how would we even begin to know what ingredients to pull off of the rack? How would we even know when the most important ingredients have run dry? We'll find that this morning's text will challenge the commonly held understandings of God right away as we read. In other words, if we live with the idea that we're on our own and you don't, we don't need to, to pay much attention to God, well, how about this way that our text starts off? This morning's text are words from the resurrected Jesus Christ who speaks to a little church in a Turkish town of Ephesus. Jesus has got some things to tell them. He's not off in the distance. He's not far removed from the lives of Christians in Ephesus or the ongoings in their church. Jesus is smack dab in the middle of it all. And after he's seen and observed some of their ongoings, he's got something to tell them. Now you and I need to know some things about this church at Ephesus. These people don't live in a bottle, so to say. And in a very similar way to you and I today, they've begun to feel the pressures of an anything-goes society. An anything-goes society that contends for the hearts and minds for everyday men and women. A world that said things like, Oh, you've got sexual desires? Act on them. A world that said, Oh, you seek your own glory? Get after it. A world that said, oh, you want to live a God-honoring life? Just pick one. Juno or Mars or, or Neptune or maybe even that guy Jesus that the Christ followers talk about. But whichever one you choose, be faithful to him. And in the midst of that backdrop, Jesus speaks to this beleaguered church some important ingredients that are necessary for you and I if the fire of our affections for Christ are to be reignited. As Jesus speaks to the Ephesians, he gives them two kudos and he gives them one chastisement. And we're going to see what the Bible says about right living by considering what Jesus applauds first in this church. Now, imagine with me for a moment. Imagine with me because these literally are, but imagine real people to whom Jesus is speaking right now. People who really lived and really gathered to worship Christ each week. These aren't fictionalized people that Jesus is speaking to. And maybe one cold winter morning at the start of a new year, the pastor of the Ephesian church, he stands up in front of the congregation to speak. And the pastor, in his, in his sermon, begins to recall some of the difficulty that the church had faced in the year past with their cloak and their blanket ministry for the orphan children in Ephesus. And he proceeds to comment on how he and the church, well, they were surprised by the resistance that they'd faced in just trying to keep kids warm, kids who had no one to look after them. Yet he was encouraged, the pastor was, by how they persisted and persevered through it all. 
And he was encouraged by the fact that the Holy Spirit had opened a door for them. And the pastor then challenged the church. He said, y'all, we need to continue to pray for our family members and for those who you work alongside, that they might come to know Christ like you and I do. He recognized that that was his custom at the start of every new year. That the pastor would issue this challenge that year and the year before and the year before. And as he continues to issue this challenge, he knows deeply how little progress they've made on that front. And then he reminds the congregation that he would soon that they would soon have their committee organization meeting the next Sunday. That organization meeting that would orient the new committee members to their responsibilities on that committee. Oh, this must have been First Baptist Church, Ephesus. And from all outward appearances, Ephesus was a great church to attend. It's fairly well organized. And they knew work. In fact, if there was one thing about this church at Ephesus, they labored for Christ. Jesus credits them for this in verse 2 when he says, I know your work. In every way that made sense for them, they maintained what God had provided for them. They maintained it none different than how our our preschool and children's leaders spent yesterday morning uh, cleaning out our education wing. None different than how the men of our sound team spent yesterday enhancing our, our equipment here. The Ephesian Christians labored long and hard for the kingdom of God. Life as a Christian, it wasn't easy in first century Ephesus. And Jesus says in the text that he applauds them for their toil and patient endurance. Why wasn't life easy for them? Well, being a Christian in first century Turkey wasn't like being a Christian in the American South, in in the American Bible Belt. It's not to say that we as Christians today live without challenges. We don't know the challenges of, that come from living in a region where the name of Christ is not known to the majority. We don't know the challenges of living under a system that's not influenced by Judeo-Christian beliefs. For our Ephesian brothers and sisters, they didn't have the benefits that we enjoy. You might picture with me once more that when the the Christians in Ephesus went to work each day in the marketplaces and the shipyards, they conducted their business amongst heathen pagans who took every opportunity against them to gain an advantage. Those pagans would have lied, they would have cheated, they would have stolen to get an edge. Yet the Christians in Ephesus, they wouldn't fall to conducting themselves like their pagan counterparts. Rather, they endured. They endured not as upstanding citizens of Rome. No, don't be confused. They endured as upstanding citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The conduct of these kingdom citizens was known by their king. And the king's response to their conduct was favorable. You might imagine what a gold star from King Jesus might mean for a tired and struggling church whose labors are a toil, as he describes. Toil's an interesting word, isn't it? Toiling is a word that we don't often use anymore in common conversation. But toil, when we read it, the the sense of it is not lost upon us. 
We understand a toil to mean that, that you're subject to a grudging, difficult work. And while that's true, in the original Greek, the word that Jesus uses that our Bibles translate as toil here is also used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe Christian ministry, to describe Christian service. That may come as a shock to you if you've understood that where you serve, say in this church, is supposed to just easily bring blessings upon you as if rose petals are falling from the sky. These Ephesians had been battle-tested and they had been hardened because they had come to discover that their service to the Lord was definitively the hardest thing they would ever do in their lives. Well, Someone might be wondering, how did people living in the first century, just decades after the Christ event, who were so few in number, how could they come to learn how to conduct themselves in such a Christ-honoring way? It's a great question if that was your question. And someone may say in response, Oh, they have the Holy Spirit! And Yes, that's true. That's a key. But it ain't all. To say that we have the Spirit in need of, and we have no need for anything else in our Christian walks, it puts us in a real dangerous spot. It's real dangerous because it's an easy enough thing to begin to say to others, you know, I'm doing this, or I'm saying this, or I'm behaving this way, because this is how the Holy Spirit has led me. That's, that's the starting point of every, every heretic and every cult known to man, by the way. Attention in our Christian faith is the reality of the Holy Spirit, God himself coming to live within the believer who himself or herself is certainly redeemed, yet is still a sinner. We need another voice outside of the one in our head to give us the ability to discern the difference between God's voice and our own. And what these Ephesians had that served them well was the truth. They had knowledge of the truth of God and they had a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And among all of their labors, it wasn't their conduct that stood out most prominently to the Lord. It was the passion that they had for the truth of the gospel that they held together in community. It was their ability to weed out the people who came through They were coming through with wrong messages about God or wrong messages about Jesus Christ because they knew deep down how how much bad theology hurts. Let's lighten the mood for a second. Did you know that there are over 617,000 bridges in the United States? You have probably driven over uh, more than you can remember or count. Here's something that's going to make you think twice before you drive over one again. In just the last decade, the condition of nearly half of those bridges has dropped from a rating of good to fair. Just the last decade. Now, I can't tell you the difference between a good rating and a fair rating, but I tell you this, my thoughts go this way. Anytime something drops, be it a plate in the kitchen, the altitude of the plane I'm on, or the condition rating of the bridge I'm driving over, it may not be a good thing, okay? Yet both of those ratings are better than the condition rating that's the lowest on this pole, the condition rating of structurally 
deficient. There was one bridge that was closed down because it was deemed structurally deficient, and it was in need of immediate repair, so they closed the thing down. No one can drive over it. Engineers went, and they replaced the bolts and the rods that supported the entire particular bridge that, that authorities had closed. They completed all of this work, and they were set to reopen the thing, set to allow vehicles to begin to drive over, and says, ah, you know what? Before we do this, we ought to test this bridge. You think, well, yeah, right, duh. But they tested the thing. And when they, they applied load, the test proved that those newly installed bolts, those newly installed rods, every last one of them cracked. They would have never been able to support the weight of anything that attempted to cross the bridge, and it would have cost countless lives. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because I wonder, I've wondered in the last couple of days, how in the midst of the type of tragedy that our community has faced, a tragedy that we're facing with the death of a beloved coach at the school, how does your philosophy on life stack up? How does it withstand the difficulties that we're facing? Say, for example, I've seen things on Facebook that have been posted, social media, that I know have been offered with an, with an intent to comfort. These ideas that would have us to believe things like, you know, life is short, so we should just live however we please. Sounds great, doesn't it? But how does that philosophy hold up under the weight of death? We might find ourselves with someone having lived that life, that philosophy of life upon the occasion of their death, coming and gathering together and saying something like, well, you know, I don't know where she is now, but I tell you, she lived exactly how she wanted What comfort is there left for those who grieve? These Ephesians did the hard work of contending for truth because they understood the vital importance of discipling Christians with the truth of the gospel. You and I have the sacred privilege to share the true faith that will, understand, that will withstand even the most difficult conditions. And an approach that we might take in attempting to accomplish that might be to encourage people to attend a church. And we think we're doing well when that encouragement gets delivered this way. You know, whatever you do, wherever you go, find yourself in a church that believes and teaches the Bible. We might have been told that ourselves. That may, may be why you're here today. But here's the thing. This church in Ephesus was one of those churches. But yet as the risen Lord Jesus gave his assessment of the church for all their hard work, for all their discerning truth from lie, they lacked something. They were missing in an ingredient, we might say. And it's not just a secondary ingredient that, for the meals that we prepare. It's, an, it's an, an ingredient that is as essential as salt to giving taste to the tongue. I joked earlier that this might be FBC Ephesus, but we, this church, are really having an organization meeting of our committees next Sunday afternoon. 
And if you're serving on a committee, you need to do everything you can to be here for that time to meet so we can begin to focus on what your committee's work will be this year. But I've been thinking about this, about the committees or the programs and the meetings that I've been involved with with those groups here at this church. I've been in those meetings where the entire group is laser-focused upon a task at hand. I mean, there's discussion about what all needs to be done and and who's going to get it done. And every once in a while, when I'm in those settings and I can see everybody, you know, 80 yards down the field on whatever they're talking about, I begin to think about and wonder if they can even see the forest for the trees in that moment. So I'll ask a question of the group. And someone might hear the question and say, Pastor, are you just trying to distract the people from their work? And no, I'm not. But I ask the question, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Whatever it is we're talking about. Because when you ask why, you're asking for purpose. What's the purpose of this thing we're planning to do? And the interesting thing about the question of why is that it's an open-ended question that invites us to explore. Well, what's the purpose of this committee? What's the purpose for our gathering here this morning? When we ask why, it invites creativity and invites expression. When we ask why, that is where the Spirit is at work. And the Ephesians could no longer answer the question of why behind what they did. There was a Roman official who was passing through Ephesus and he stops a Christian and asks, A Christian, what's your purpose for your concern with these orphans or these widows of the city? Why do y'all subject yourself to such toil? Can't you look at the life that I live or the life that others like me live and see how much easier life might be if you just bowed the knee to Lord Caesar? I mean, you could have all the comforts in this life and explore your wildest pleasures while you're doing it. And the Ephesian Christian, they might respond this way. You can enjoy all your pleasures while I carry this cross of toil and I obey the commands of Jesus. Because while I'm enjoying eternity with the true Lord of all, you'll be burning in hell. That hit your ears as harsh. It was supposed to. Because that's Christianity missing an ingredient. Now, don't get me wrong. It's true. For every person in time, eternity awaits us each. We each stare squarely ahead at the certainty that life as we know it will end. And the proposition for us, each of us, is either heaven or hell. That is true. But to communicate truth so harshly, as that Ephesian did, would be to do nothing more than to serve to harden hearts to Jesus. It's been said that truth without love is brutality. These Ephesians had become all hands, they'd become all head, but they had no heart. For all their service, for all their head, for all their book knowledge, they lacked where it mattered most. They missed the main ingredient of our faith. Love. 
Paul writes to the Corinthians that Christians are nothing and that Christians gain nothing if we don't have love. I couldn't imagine looking into the eyes of precious teenagers or educators this week to do or to say or to think anything that might be rooted anywhere other than the love of Jesus Christ. It's love that when tragedy falls like it has this week, that we can speak the words of Jesus from the Beatitudes. Jesus said amongst the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, how could Jesus make such an audacious claim that there's comfort coming to those who mourn like we? What's comforting about the chilling reality of death? Well, Jesus, when he, when he proclaimed this, he knew all that lay before him when he spoke it. He knew on that mountainside as he preached that the fullness of God dwelled within him. And that in him, the arrival of God's kingdom had been initiated. In him, God has entered into human history in Jesus. He knew all our frailties, yes. But he knew not sin like you and I. In Jesus, God shows us that he's that God shows us that God's not preoccupied with up there, but he's intimately involved with the affairs of earth down here, announcing to you and I that it's in the kingdom that we will no longer shed tears because of the pain of our work. Then we'll be gone, and the death itself will be no more. That in God's kingdom, all that we understand to be true in this world will be lastingly reversed back to how it was intended to be. That the separation we suffer from God's presence will be reconciled and humans will be with God once more. Someone asks, how can it be remotely possible for for the reversal of all this fallen world to come to pass? That's the question I've been laboring towards. It's the one I've been waiting to answer. Because in it we find the answer of why God would seek to save anyone. In it we find the answer about why we as Christians do anything. That's the question whose answer is rooted in the love that God has for each of us. The answer that we know so well from the third chapter of of, of John For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Ah, but verse 17 is important too. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not whatever. Through him. See, God's love propelled his grand salvation plan that's going to reverse all of the fallenness of this world. And that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no comfort in mourning because there is no one above the earth, no one on the earth, no one under the earth who can make sense of death except the one who's gone through it and has come back from it. And what Jesus tells this church then, and he tells us today, is that church isn't a church without love. 
Not a flowery, sentimental love, but a bloody, nail-welcoming, cross-bearing love. The missing ingredient in our Christian walks is the same as the missing ingredient in churches all across America. It's the reason why the fire of the Spirit has grown cold. We can become so bound up in just the perpetual motion of doing what we do because the generation we've inherited from did it that way. And somewhere along the way, the purpose, the why of what we do gets lost. Church, our why, our purpose is found in God's love for us that enables us to return love to him and as a consequence of that, to love others. Imagine with me one more time. Imagine a church that has something for everyone. A church that has a fairly repeatable pattern to their calendar every year that's filled with things like committee meetings and vacation Bible school and mission trips and summer camps and food distributions and Wednesday meals and and Bible studies and worship services. From every outward appearance, some might regard a church like that to be the best in town. What sort of kingdom impact can a church have when in the midst of all of that busyness, they've individually and collectively let their fire grow cold? That fire grows cold so quickly by permitting all that busyness to distract them from their love for the God who first loved them. Imagine with me a second church, a different church. A church who everything they do, the, the times that they come to study, the times that they come to, to, to worship, everything about their, their, their life, is rooted in affections that are stirred by God's love shown most perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether the people that gathered there had been there six weeks or 60 years, every last one of them started their day by recounting the day that they were born again of the Spirit. They remember the day of their salvation and then they would go forth. (laughs) A church like that, You wouldn't need any of that other stuff in that other church. The people in that church would be concerned, would not be concerned about being the best church in town because as God's spirit led them, they would become the best church for the town. That's the sort of church that would turn the world upside down. That's the sort of church that gets their name known in hell. And that's the sort of church I want to be a member of. A church who knows the why of all that she does is rooted in God's love for us. And we return that love for him. And that love that we receive, that we return, we bless others with. If you came here this morning confident that you are a Christian, I'm going to ask you to gauge yourself. If you've ever been in a boiler room, it's, you'll know it's impossible to look into the boiler to see how much water that boiler contains. But running up beside it is a little tiny glass tube. That glass tube serves as a gauge. And as the water stands in that little tube, so it stands in the great boiler. When the tube is half full, so is the boiler. When the tube is, is empty, 
so is the boiler. How do you know you love God? You believe you love him, but you want to know. You look at the gauge. Your love for others is the measure of your love for God. And if that gauge, if that gauge registers deficient of love for God as evidenced by the lack of love for others, the only thing we are to do is to do as Jesus bids this church at Ephesus to do, to repent, to return to the foot of the cross, to be reminded of God's love for you, and to ask the Holy Spirit to stir within you affections for your glorious Savior once more. And if you came here this morning still unconverted, still in your sin, I implore you, all that Jesus preached about concerning God's kingdom and the end of death, it's absolutely true. I have staked my life on the certainty of this. I've staked my eternity on this. God loves you so much that he's made a way For you, yes, even you, so that you might be redeemed. But the redemption of Jesus Christ, it doesn't come on your terms. It doesn't come by your compromise with God. It only comes by the way in which God has decreed, and that is by faith alone and grace alone because of what Jesus Christ has done. By God's grace, you have life at this moment. And God has given you this opportunity to repent as well. To turn from your going it your way and to surrender to Him. I invite you. Won't you heed this call? Won't you surrender to Christ and His love today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wonderful cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we need not seek to answer these things on our own, but we can turn to your word and its truthfulness and our certainty because you have spoken this word to know what awaits us each. We thank you that by what Christ has done for humanity and all creation upon the cross, that we know that the day in which he returns, all things will be made right and all things made new. We know too that it is by the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ and our faith in what he has done that we will enjoy looking upon all that you are set to do, dear God. Lord, I pray that you would renew within us or for the first time stir within us a love for you in response to your demonstration of love for us. God, we love you. That is our declaration today. And Lord, I pray that if any of us have acted or operated or spoken as if we're deficient of the love of God, may we return to the foot of that cross and look upon the fullness of the face of our Savior where your Spirit might work within us to draw us to him once more. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand, and I invite you to respond. I I invite you to respond in these ways. 
If the spirit of the living God is calling you to trust upon Christ and to salvation, I invite you to come.